welcome to the Cork Church Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining us today. We hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and encourages you in the things of the Lord. Enjoy the message. Well, it is good to half see you and see you and those online that are gathering with us. Delighted to have you with us again tonight as well and trust that the Lord is speaking to your hearts. It's been one of those days for me, I have to be honest with you. Um, uh, just waiting on a word all day today. And um, so we're just going to ask God to bless what he's given me. And maybe you'd leave refreshed and encouraged in the Lord. Would not be a good prayer tonight? That Christ, we ask tonight that your name would be lifted up. We ask that only your name be lifted up. But we ask that you would lift up every heart that is downcast. And those who are hungry will be fed. Those who are seeking will find. Those who knock, the door will be open for them. And I just praise you again for what you're doing in our midst. And thank you so much, Lord, that this time of the year, Father, we can, we can just gather in such, in such luxury and safety without any fear over us and gather in your house with like-minded believers to worship, Lord, and to hear from your word. Thank you for this great opportunity, Lord. I thank you for the privilege of being able to minister the word, and I just pray, God, again, that we do justice to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Well, in the United States, there was what they called three, some argue four, great awakenings. Now, great awakenings, you'll hear about the history. Uh, you'll have heard that term thrown around, the great awakenings. But what they were, were great times of revival hitting the United States, other parts of the world had tremendous revivals as well, but there was four of them, one in the 17, mid-1700s to late-1700s, another one in the, in the mid-1800s to the late-1800s, and then the late-1800s to the mid-1900s was, was the third one. And then the fourth with Billy Graham and the, in, the, in the 1960s, there was a huge move in the United States. Uh, to the to the great ministries predominantly, but not only that, there was a massive, massive move of God among the um, the hippie movement, uh, which became known as the Jesus movement. And so there was these great times of visitation and great great ministry that came out of those times. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, over those awakenings came to know the Lord in a very in a very powerful way. But one of the messages that really stands out. It, to church historians or people that like the history of the church is a message by a man called Jonathan Edwards and he preached on the 8th of July 1741 in Enfield, Northampton, Massachusetts and he preached a message that became iconically known and it's, it's, it's somehow it's, it's, been, it's, it's characterizing Christianity and I, I think sometimes it's, it's a bit of an unfortunate title it's true and it's not true but the title of his message was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the title of his message. And, and, and I'm not here in any way to take away from that message. That message was a powerful message that led to a tremendous outbreak of God and, and, and revival and repentance. And he basically, you know, he, I think he had 10 points to his sermon where he, he talked about the, 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 the power of God keeping the demonic darkness back and giving men, giving sinners an opportunity 
And that, may, that, that opportunity will not always be there. There's that restraining hand of God holding darkness back from completely sub, submerging you into the pit of hell and hell's fires are burning. And that was his message, you know. Uh, but it turned quickly into the sort of characterizing of God as this angry person, uh, as angry God, that you're in the hands of an angry God. And, uh, and tonight, I, I, I just want to interject as, we, as we're coming up to the Christmas season, it doesn't really kind of flow really with the New Testament because the, the reading of the New Testament is more like God in the hands of angry sinners. Can I hear an amen? It's a very different way. You know, sometimes you can, you can read your Bible and you can, without understanding the pragmatics, you know, the voice and manner which something is spoken, uh, you know, they're called the pragmatics. It's more how, th- how is something is communicated as much as what is communicated. So we can raise our voices, our lower voices. We can get excited. You know, sometimes we have some punctuation. I'm not very good in this area of English, but we have punctuation. Anytime I do a letter, I send it to Jess. I said, Jess, will you punctuate this? She's four hours trying to punctuate my letter, but she always has it back, and she's got the apostrophes in the right places, and she's got the exclamation marks in the right places to highlight and bring, make the, the letter more alive and more applicable. Because when you read a letter, or you read some words in the page, you don't hear anybody's voice. So you don't know if there's, if there, is it an angry tone or is it a, is it a nice tone? And, uh, and sometimes people read their Bibles and they don't know the pragmatics. They read verses in the scripture and they're not hearing the heart of God. Have you ever noticed that? That you can, even yourself, you have to, you have to lens correctly the scriptures. Otherwise you come up with a skewed view of who God is. Let me give you an example of that. I hope these thoughts come together as one thought later on, because these are all these eclectic thoughts I had sitting at my desk today before the Lord. But this is Isaiah 50. You've heard me preach this in the church many times, but I love Isaiah 50. Isaiah, again, is known as the book of the Bible, 66 books, and then around halfway, it moves from old covenant theology into new covenant. It starts bringing, there's more revelation of Christ there than in any other book, I think, and it has all the major doctrines of the New Testament within its book. That's why it's called the book of the Bible. Phenomenal book, the book of Isaiah. But Isaiah 50, uh, one, I think it's one of the servant songs. And I, let me just read to you what I mean about pragmatics. Now, this is what the Lord says. Was your mother sent away because I divorced her? You could read it that way. Or the pragmatic would be right. This is what the Lord says. Was your mother sent away because I divorced her? Do you hear the difference? I didn't divorce her. I didn't send her away. Did I sell you as slaves to my creditors? I owe, did I owe a debt to someone and I sold you for it? No, you were sold because of your own sins. And your mother too was taken because of your sins. And so all of a sudden you begin to see that there can be a reading of who God is in a very wrong context, even from the Christian. You can open up your Bible and have a lot of these verses, and if you don't get the context and background and the pragmatics right, you get to a skewed version of God. And, and I do think that this world has a, has a pretty poor rep, view of who God is, the God of the Bible. I think they have a wrong view of who God is. I think they have been, God has been misrepresented. Uh, I think even well-meaning people misrepresent him, and I think even me and, and, and on a bad day can misrepresent him, and you can in other words, you know, you and I could misrepresent him in the, in the manner of how we behave towards another person because we have a bad mood and yet they know we're Christians. 
And we are a representation of, of that message. The Apostle Paul said, you are our epistles written on the hearts and minds of all men. So you know, people won't read the Bible, but they'll read you. And sometimes we can be very bad representations of who God is. I think of that verse when Nathan the prophet came to David and said, because of this sin, you have given occasion to the enemies of God. You've given a misrepresentation of God is, and we're all guilty of that. Thanks be to God this morning, we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. The Bible says, if, if the Lord was to mark your transgression, who could stand? Thank God he's not in the business of marking your book. Thank God tonight, friends, that that is not a representation of the God of the Bible. And as, as there is sin involved in our lives, and God hates sin, and God is angry towards sin, we begin to get a more balanced view of who he is. When we, when we turn to the famous verse of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, of course, that's very unusual because, you know, you know the, the, the thinking from the Jew, even though they, how they extracted their opinion of God, was something very uncertain all the time. It was an uncertain relationship. It was always metric against how well they performed with the law and how well they performed with their ordinances and with their ob obligations to their religious practice, all dependent on how much God loved them. And I suppose it was really like being on one giant, um, you could say, uh, elliptical or uh, treadmill. You know, here we go again. Have I prayed enough today, Lord? Do you love me more now? I've given more money. I've done more good deeds. Am I a bit skinnier in your eyes? You know, and, and something that is the way people view the love of God and what way they can perform some sort of thing for the Lord. And the Bible starts to dismiss that myth all the time because that is a misrepresentation of who he is. His anger is demonstrated towards, sorry, his anger is a demonstration of his justice and his disdain for the deceiver who was Satan. I want you to hear that again. His anger is a demonstration of his justice and his disdain for the deceiver Satan and his passion to restore the true attention and affection of men away from the enemy's decoys and onto the truth. Not awesome. That, that when you hear about the anger of God, he's angry against sin. You know, I've got dear friends at the moment battling cancer, or Tony's battling cancer, my dear friend Billy Deasy's battling cancer, my brother Gavin's battling sickness for a long, long time. And I want to tell you, friends, that angers me. It angers me to see these men having to fight for breath and fight for, you know, just quality of life. You know, and so we get angry, and rightly so. Sickness is awful. Why would you not have a righteous anger against it? Why my family? Why my father? Why my son? Why my daughter? And it'd be an anger against sickness. But God's angry against sin. Because he sees that that sin is the very reason that sickness came into the world. And with that sin, friends, came every attack on the human being to disfigure the image of God, to maim you, to destroy you, to literally disfigure you, cut your face in a bottle fight, ruin your liver from drinking, to, you know, destroy your mind with drugs, destroy your moral fiber, your ability to hold down a, a loving relationship, your ability to, to, to supply for a family. Everything that's good that God put into you as a little child in the womb of your mom, the enemy and sin keeps to, just comes to destroy, to seek and to kill and to destroy, the Bible says. But Jesus, I have come that you would have life. Hallelujah. What a great message, amen. His anger towards sin and Satan is righteous, friends. 
And his desire is to turn the hearts of men back to himself and away from the decoys of the devil. The decoys of the devil are things that are pleasures that will take us down a road and end up destroying us. I, I always had this pet theology, and I'm not saying it's an orthodoxy, but I believe if, if sin didn't do any damage to us, God would have no problem with us doing it, friends. He knows what sin does. He knows its effect upon your body, on your mind, upon your soul. And he declares war and he's angry with that. And I love that. I love the fact that God is just and he's truth. I love the fact that you know, he declares war against the enemy. I love the fact that he's declared war against sin. He's going to cancel sin, friends. He's going to take it out of the universe. Amen. It'll be banished, friends. It'll not even be a memory. There'll be a testimony of a place called hell. One day where you can look and see that what sin has done to those who didn't turn to the Lord. And that's the plea of the Holy Spirit. You don't realize what it's going to do to you. Not only will it disfigure you, not only will it change you, it will change you into everything, the opposite of what God intended for you. I remember his old Bob Edgar, uh, the old Assemblies of God pastor, friends of mine. He's gone to be with the Lord, but he used to preach for us many times, and he was a, tr a tremendous friend. And we used to just sit in my house, and we would talk for hours on end. You know, I would, I would so enjoy when I had these old men of God come into my home, staying with us, because I was never in Bible school, so I loved picking their brains. I loved discussing the scriptures, talking about doctrine. And I remember him leaning back on the couch one day, and he said, you know, Nick, he said, I was only thinking last week, the Bible says when sin is grown, it brings forth, fully grown, it brings forth death. You know, he said, I'm, I think, you know, when you see what sin did to the angelic being, he said, what happened when the angels sinned? What, 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 what metamorphosis, what change happened to them? And I said, well, they became demons. He said, do you think it'll be any different when we slip over into eternity to the human being? Wow, what a thought. God knows I hate sin. It's going to change that man, that woman, into everything the opposite of what it was intended to be. It will change you into everything, the most ugliest creature that has ever, ever born into this world. And so God sets apart his design to free men from such bondage and to deal justly and righteously with sin. And of course, the Bible is all about sinners in the hands of a loving God. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the word of God tonight. I'm just thinking about how the promises of God right back in the garden were, were declared to us and spoken to us, to our forefathers. The spoken word. Jerry has a ministry called, and it's a spoken word. The logos. The very mind of God spoken to us. That's the spoken word. And now we have the written word. The very mind of God put on print for us. Amen. But we're coming up to Christmas. We were talking about the word becoming flesh. Hallelujah. The, the embodiment of this incredible thought of God. The embodiment of the Logos, the Word becoming flesh, the incarnation. And I, for me, as, when I was a younger preacher, 
I, I loved the doctrine of the Trinity, and I loved the doctrine of the Incarnation. Christmas always lit me up because it got me thinking more than any other time of the year of the doctrine of the Incarnation. The Logos, the very expression, the intelligence of God becoming embodied. Hallelujah. Not taking on flesh. The Word became flesh. It's a phenomenal thought. I, I just love it. I, I just love this, this, this expansion of, 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 of the plan of God. You know, our Bible ends in Malachi in the Old Testament, and there's, there's 400 years, really, from the end of Malachi to the preaching of John the Baptist. It's a 400-year period, and they call it the silent years. Now, that means there was no prophet. There was no new revelation of God. And a lot of things happened in that 400 years of Israel's history. Of course, Alexander the Great came along. He conquered most of the known world. He conquered Israel. The world became Hellenized. That means the Greek language and culture began to infuse its way in. 400 years is a long time, friends, for your language to change, your culture. You'd start taking on new cultural adaptations. Commerce was going on. Kingdoms were rising and falling. But during that 400-year period, lots of things happened to Israel. You know, you had, as I said, Alexander the Great. When he died, his kingdom broke up into a couple of different sections. And Antiochus, one of his generals, came, and he wasn't at all as liberal towards the Jews. I mean, Alexander the Great admired different religions and he even had a copy, a translation made of the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, which we are the LXX. And he had it, he had it gold bound and put in the Alexandria um, library and uh, it was presented to him. So he, he was a man of great learning. He studied under Aristotle. He was a great philosopher, Alexander the Great, as well as a conqueror, and as well as a very immoral man. And he was all these things together. He was a, quite an enigma. But when he died, his, you know, he, he, the benevolence that he showed towards Israel had left. Antiochus came in and he showed a lot of evil towards Israel. He came and he slaughtered a pig in the temple, changed the altar out. He, he basically he confused the Jewish religion. He tried to, tried to dissolve it. He tried to dilute it. And then you had, you had a huge tension within Israel. This is all in that 400-year period. Huge tensions going on. A lot of darkness. The Jews were fighting for their existence. They were fighting for their identity in their own land. The Maccabees came up. You know, uh, Judas Maccabees came and they fought against Antiochus and they repelled them out and they restored an order back into Israel. They restored the priesthood back in again. The worship of, uh, of God in the temple was restored. And so it was a very mixed time, but there's no prophet, there's no preacher. There's no revelation of God. Commerce is going on. Things are getting darker. And the, Jew, the revelation that the Jew had was becoming more nationalistic about his identity rather than the purity of worship to God. It was all about you know, Ireland is Irish soil, you know, someone once said. It was all about a sort of a nationalism of identity. There was no real affection uh, for the things of God. And so the Jews were becoming quite backslidden. And, and in actual fact, you had two main, you know, at that time, the, the Pompey comes in and he conquers uh, uh, the area and, and the, the Romans begin to bring their rule in about 80 years before Christ. And they put in Herod. So he was a puppet from the Roman system. Herod, Herod was very Hellenized. He was very liberal. He was not, Herod actually wasn't even of the royal tribe. He wasn't even a Jew. Herod actually was a, an Edomite. You know, he had no right to the, to the throne of, of, of Israel whatsoever. He was put in place there. I'm telling you all this because in that 400 year period, you have this, 
this void, these silent years, but the world, the world wasn't silent. The world was just going on with its wars and its rising up of powers and dropping down of powers and all these forces were taking place in the land of Israel and around the known world of, of its time. And in the, in the, in the pagan world, which, had, which were polytheistic, that means they had more than one God. In actual fact, they had a pantheon of gods. The Greeks had all their gods. The Romans had all their gods. Other nations had their gods. It was, it was just a pantheon of gods, a, a, a pantheon of confusion, people worshiping rocks to planets to mysticism. And, and so it came at a time towards the end of that 400 years as we begin to come close to the, to the, the heralding of Christ into the world. You, it, it came this sort of, uh, you could say this sort of uh, motion within paganism where a lot of pagan leaders were beginning to question the idea of the gods, their authority, because they were so let down by the gods, you know, and, and people began to question. And, and the pagan world slowly started to look to monotheism. In actual fact, the Jews were the more favored because Alexander the Great had a, had a lot of utility for the Jewish understanding of one God, monotheism meaning only one God. And so the pagan world was slowly, not rapidly, but slowly moving towards a, a polytheistic view, both, both in this philosophical view, view of religion. The Jews, on the other hand, because they had no revelation of God, with the revelation that they did have, became hard and indifferent. You know, um, you know, they were under such oppression, they were, they were conquered again, as they said, by Pompey under Rome. Rome was also a very, you know, with, it, with, with its iron mechanisms, they were, they, were, they were ruthless in battle and they had literally suppressed all foes. And so when they came in, they did a lot of damage in the fabric of the nation. And so there's this, there's this reviving going back into the heart of the Jew and a cry for the Messiah. A cry for the Messiah. This is what's happening in this time of the year. There's this, in Jerusalem every year now, the festivals are taking on more of a nationalistic, it, it's, it's like Nuren, the Nuremberg you know, rallies under Hitler. There, there, there's the, the, you know, for the Jews, there was a lot of truth, of obviously of what they're trying to restore and this cry for God, but it was so linked to nationalism, so much bloodlusting there for throwing off the yoke of oppression and wanting to have their own freedom that there was no sense of God. God really was the secondary issue. The darkness really, friends, had really hit an apex at this time of, of history. And at the darkest moment, 400 years of no word from the Lord, no prophet to Israel. You know, when confusion reigned, when people, even when the Jews themselves, they weren't truly believing the report of the Lord. They were looking at more in their own hands to throw off the, their oppressors and, and to rise up in their own power. And, and so this was the world that Jesus came into. And I think about Luke chapter 2, and this is how the birth of Jesus came. After Mary gave birth to her son, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger in some hole in the wall in a place called Bethlehem. Probably a little cave. And then too far away, the scriptures go on to talk about these shepherds who were out looking after the, the lambs, who were actually the sacrificial lambs to be used in the temple, which is quite interesting. And, and they're, they're just there doing their duties, looking, caring for them. And then the angels begin to sing. And then they get the revelation, born in this day in the city of David. You know, it's the, the, the Messiah. And they go and they come, to the, they come to the cave and they see the animals there. And they, see, they see the holy family there. They, they see the, the baby Jesus. They come to worship. The Bible says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. There was something, 
she quite couldn't quite grasp all this. She knew something special that is happening, of course. She knew her, the, the miraculous side of her, her birth, but she has no understanding that she's holding God in her hands. That would not even enter into a Jewish thinking. And I began to think of this little babe, the vulnerability. Pastor Steve loves talking about Christ condescending. You know, when you use the word condescending, it doesn't actually flatter. It, it, ordinary, if, you're, if you're condescending, it means you're looking down your nose at someone. You know, you're, you're talking above them, or you're, 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 you're not treating people right, and to condescend. But the Bible condescension is actually its purest form, because the Bible says, though he, be, he was rich, he became poor. He stepped out of the gates of heaven, friends, where he is surrounded in absolute light and worshipped from eternity to eternity, friends. He doesn't come back from a holiday reluctantly. Oh, I have to now go back to the workplace. He'll dwell in inapproachable light. Do you understand what I mean? You know, sometimes you go on a holiday and you think, oh, I never want to leave this place. And, 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 and you get a little bit of picture of condescending to come back into this fallen realm around you. Friends, he stepped out of heaven. He emptied himself. Submitted himself to the will of God. And now... Even at his most tender age, Herod is out to kill him. There's more than a fatwa on his head. Talk about God in the hands of angry sinners. That's the gospel message. That the babe of Bethlehem, in all his vulnerabilities, and I haven't got time tonight, and I don't care to go into tonight, but I just want to inspire you tonight. That that word becoming flesh, coming into this world, the helplessness, the trusting nature that the, the Father who sent him would protect him and hold him and keep him. With all the vulnerabilities, with the world in chaos, with the darkness looming, with nationalism at a fever pitch, the revolution was in the air. Everybody was turning in everybody. You had just those who are collaborators with the Romans and they're turning in others. And it's a mess, friends. The world is in a mess. And the world is in a mess today. But the babe of Jerusalem, the babe of Bethlehem, is no longer a babe, friends. But I think of that babe and a boy of 12 years of age going to the temple with his parents as it was customary. And he would go there and they, they head back home. It was a whole day's walk when they discovered he wasn't in the caravan train. And they had to go back to Jerusalem. It took a whole day to find him again. Eventually they found him in the temple at 12 years of age knowing he must be about his father's business. So the man came not into this world to condemn the world but that the world through me would be saved, he says. Hallelujah. Does that sound like an angry God to you? Does that sound like someone who, who hates people? Yet I think about him at the age of 30 entering into his ministry, embracing the full consciousness of his call, being led by the Spirit. The very first act after his baptism into Jordan by John, he, he's brought into the place of temptation, into wilderness. The God that brought him in has to bring him out. That's his submission. The Holy Spirit leads me, then I have to go. And I want to tell you, if the Holy Spirit leads you, you have to go. You can't resist the Holy Spirit. Some do. But he went into that wilderness. He taught us how to submit to the will of God. And God who brought me into that wilderness will, wilderness will bring me out. And I want to tell you, if you're in the wilderness today and God has brought you there, you embrace it until God brings you out because that's where your, your faith will grow. That's where your experience, that's where your testimony will be cemented. And so he's brought out of that place. He starts his earthly ministry. The first thing he does, he goes to a wedding in Cana. 
sees a couple that are heading already for a, a shipwreck as regards their marriage and he supplies what's needed so that they don't become embarrassed publicly and families go at each other's throats. And then he starts to heal. And then he starts to reach the leper. And then he starts to heal the blind man and the lame. And then he starts to feed the people and he begins to instruct the people. But eventually he's betrayed. God in the hands of angry sinners. Eventually he's paraded after being beaten to a pulp in the praetorium where the Bible says his countenance was marred like no other man was marred. The Bible says he was one like we would hide our faces from. He looked, terif- he looked terrible, friends. I don't know if you've been watching the news recently, but there was a little boy in Dublin and he was mauled nearly to death by a pit bull. The, the dog ripped his face off. They said he will never again look normal. He's, he's disfigured for life, this child. And that's what our Savior went through for us, friends. He didn't have to, but for the joy that was set before him, the Bible says he would endure the cross. Romans 8 says of you and I tonight, and it's a, it's a scripture spoken eternally over you, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 5 and verse 8 says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love for us. Does that sound like sinners in the hands of an angry God? Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. What a God we serve tonight, friends. I said, what a mighty God. You know, when I came in here tonight, it wasn't the best of days for me, I have to be honest with you. But I was so appreciative of the worship. I said, I'm going to cast this off because God is good all the time. Amen. God's not angry with me. He's not angry with you. Hallelujah tonight. That anger was taken out in his own beloved son, friends, who took the penalty of sin, who took the justice of God upon himself. And there's nothing in the heart of God towards you and I but love and kindness and to do you good. That's the gospel message. That's the message about Apostle Paul says, it's that love of God compels me. It's that love of God, in other words, that love of God motivates me. It's not the fear of God motivates me. It's the love of God motivates me. The fear of God brings me to repentance, amen? Because I do know if sin isn't dealt with, I fear where that's going to bring me. The darkness of hellfire for sure. And so there, will, there is judgment for those who do not take the opportunity even now at the sound of my voice and some would be listening here and others later on at another time. And God is lifting the darkness away from you. He's giving you opportunity to repent. He's keeping the demons from swallowing you up. He's keeping you and preserving you another second so that you can call upon the name of the Lord. Because he knows what sin is doing in you. He knows where it's bringing you. But he said, I haven't come to condemn you, but I have come to set you free. Hallelujah. What a great God we serve. What a mighty God we serve, friends. The power of the gospel. God who is rich in mercy and love. God who laid aside heaven's finest and heaven's beauty and came down and lowered himself. I praise his name this morning. Tonight, I praise his name tonight. I thank him with all my heart that he would lay aside his majesty 
and that he would pursue me and pursue you. I want to tell you tonight, friends, that that God who came those 2,000 years ago and died on that cross for us, that love that that, that drove him to that cross is still burning in his heart for you. Whatever you have done, whatever failure you've been involved in, whatever weaknesses in your life, and I'm sure there's some very unflattering things. Pastor Patrick is speaking tonight in UCC, and the topic they asked him to preach on is, they, they gave him a topic to preach on, which is actually great for a preacher because you can just, you're not waiting for something, you're just, you're, give me a topic. Is God ashamed of me? And we were laughing at the title downstairs. He said, sometimes I'm ashamed of myself. Sometimes my mom is ashamed of me. You know, sometimes my wife's ashamed of me. You know, sometimes other people are ashamed of you. But I want to tell you, he's not ashamed of you. And the Bible says, he's not ashamed to call you brother. Isn't that amazing? To call you his own. To identify with you. Oh, sometimes we're a little bit ashamed to identify with him because it doesn't look cool in the school place or the workplace. It kind of looks a little bit odd to be identified with him. But he identifies with you. And he loves you and cares for you. You know, we treat God wickedly all the time. We do. Jesus told the parable, i leave you with this. He told the parable about a man who had a vineyard and he rented out the vineyard to these vine dressers. But they never paid a man things, so he, would, he sent a servant in and they beat that servant, sent him on his way. Sent another servant, beat him very badly. He said, I know, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And the son came and they said, oh, this is the heir. You know, we can weaken the family dynasty here. We can weaken the reach of this man because he's living in a foreign country now. He'll have nobody else to send to us. Well, let's kill him. And they killed him. Jesus talked about two servants that owed money to his master, and the master forgave them both. One was only a small amount of money, and the others, and he forgave him, and the other was a large amount of money, and he forgave him. But the one of the guys that was forgiven caught his fellow compatriot and said, you owe me a little bit of money now. Pay me what you owe me or I'm going to have you put in prison. And he had the guy put in prison because he couldn't pay. And Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my little ones, you've done it to me. Are you angry with God? Are you angry with your brother, your sister? Because it really is God in the hands of an angry sinner then, isn't it? And Pilate brought him out. And that day, and he said, I give you Barabbas. And I give you Jesus. Which one do you want to release? He said, give us Barabbas. And he said, well, what shall I do with Jesus? Angry sinner. We know what they said. Crucify him. But my prayer tonight is for any man or any woman here is to say, forgive me. And to receive his forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, that It's your love that draws us to repentance. 
It's your love, Lord God, that melts the hardest of hearts. And Lord, as we even tomorrow step into December, Lord, into that month, Lord God, where we come and remember the incarnation, the vulnerability of you, Lord, submitting, condescending, coming into this, out of the glories of heaven and having to suffer the indignation of our behavior, our attitudes, our stinky behavior, our stinky attitudes, Lord. Our sin, Lord, that's appalling and, 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 and shameful. And yet we're the ones that get angry with you, Father. How messed up are we? And yet you love us. You came to give yourself for us. And so, Jesus, tonight, we just thank you with all of our hearts that you didn't do what we deserved, which was death and hell and darkness. But you reached into our hearts. You melted our hearts with your love. And Lord, we bow the knee before you tonight again and say you are our Lord and our Savior. And there is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one like you. I just want you, where you are tonight, seated, just keep your eyes closed and raise your hand to the Lord and say to him, just between you and him, say, Lord, there's no one like you. Just say, Lord, there's no one like you. Who's like unto thee, O God among the gods, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who's like unto thee, O God? Who shall you compare me to, says the Lord? Who would ever love you like Christ loves you? knows every unflattering thing you've ever done and still says, I love you with an everlasting love. So Christian, may he never be in the hands of an angry Christian. May our hands be full of favor and kindness, our touch, a loving touch, our words, a soft word. And when we can't speak like that, we put our hands over our mouth like Job says, and we'll compound the problem by adding my words to it that say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if you can go there tonight, you can receive and be motivated by the love of God in a way that you've never been before. And your life can march forward under the grace and the banner of knowing that my life now is hidden with Christ in God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cork Church. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions at all, you can email us info at corkchurch.com or just check out our website www.corkchurch.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and see you next time. God bless.